wife always is telling me I'm going to get myself in bad trouble. All those people dying on account of it. Like a snowball when it starts rolling itself up, gathering, what is it? Momentum. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and that was Victor Mature explaining to us why the title of this episode is Momentum. You see, it's like a snowball. You accidentally kill someone, and the next thing you know, you're running down the street waving a gun and shooting at policemen. So now we've got our theme and our concept, and it's pretty well marked. There's only one problem with all of this. Victor Mature is not the star of our episode. He actually is the star of the suspense radio show of this same story. And while Victor Mature's Dick Payne, no jokes please, is a real rotter, Skip Holmeyer's Dick, no jokes please, is written to be a lot more sympathetic, which dilutes the theme so much that the word momentum isn't even used in the TV episode at all. Does that make it better or worse than the radio show and the original short story? Let's find out. Here's Hitch. Did you ever have the feeling that you were being watched? He looks over his left shoulder, and the camera pans up to show a big painted eye on the wall behind him, upstage left. Observe closely. No eyelid. He never sleeps. Obviously an ideal audience. Unfortunately, he doesn't watch television. That's true. He isn't watching me. He's watching you to see if you're watching me. Please don't misunderstand. I love television. As a performer, that is. But I feel the wrong person is being paid. Actors receive salaries, but the viewers, the people who do the really hard work, don't make a cent. It seems to me that television is exactly like a gun. He pulls a gun out and he points it at us. Your enjoyment of it is determined by which end of it you're on. Tonight we plan to tell a story about this gun and what a very ordinary man did with it in the course of 24 hours. That's where the intro on my DVD ends, cutting out the line about the sponsor. But thanks to Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, here it is. First, however, we must pause briefly to issue a special report about one of our sponsor's products. So here's Momentum. First broadcast on June 24th, 1956. Starring Skip Holmeyer and Joanne Woodward. Teleplay by Francis Cockrell, based on a story by Cornell Woolrich, and directed by Robert Stevens. Our two leads are new to the show, and we have a whole slew of supporting players to sort out as well. But our writers and director are old friends. Francis Cockrell is halfway through his teleplays for the series, with this being his ninth out of 18, plus one more stint as director. His last eight were Revenge, Breakdown, The Case of Mr. Pelham, A Bullet for Baldwin, You Got to Have Luck, Back for Christmas, Who Done It, which he also directed, and The Gentleman from America. His next is Demortuous, Episode 3 of Season 2. 
This is the second of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour, based on the stories of Cornell Woolrich. His last was episode 15, The Big Switch. I talked about Woolrich quite a lot in that episode, including a mention that his short story, originally called It Had to Be Murder, was the basis for arguably Hitchcock's best film, Rear Window. His next is Postmortem, episode 33 of season 3, but you could argue that his next is 4 o'clock, episode 1 of the anthology series Suspicion, with a teleplay by Francis Cockrell and produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And this is the 15th of 44 Alfred Hitchcock Presents and 5 Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes directed by Robert Stevens, after Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, The Older Sister, Shopping for Death, Place of Shadows, The Perfect Murder, Portrait of Jocelyn, Never Again, The Gentleman from America, The Babysitter, and The Hidden Thing. His next, like Francis Cockrell's, is Demortuous, episode three of season two. As our episode begins, it looks like we have another narrator. This time, it's Dick Payne, played by Skip Holmeyer. And he not only narrates the beginning, he appears as sort of a ghostly image superimposed over stock footage of a subway train at a station with people rushing off, of a busy street, and of a nighttime theater district. Now, as opposed to Victor Mature filling us in on momentum, Skip Holmeyer seems much more concerned with the city being a rat race. You know what it is? A rat race. You run all day just to keep even. Slow down and somebody's walking up your heels. There is one moment in this ghostly sequence where Dick appears as flesh and blood. And that's when he stands by a loading dock door, looking at the newspaper, ready to apply for a job. Help wanted men. Aggressive, hard-hitting young salesman for national distribution. Salary and commission. It's not much of a job. No commissions and you get a lot of talk instead of salary. But it's the only one I haven't tried and I've got to get something. I didn't get it. Whoop, that was fast. Was it really that hard to get a job back in 1956? Well, it is for Dick, and off he goes back to being a ghostly image. But at least when he's a ghostly image, he isn't cast in a shadow, because there are plenty of shadows in this episode, beginning with Dick's shadow and the shadow of a ladder at that loading dock where he's looking at the newspaper. Now, it could just be that the lighting designer didn't know what he was doing, but I suspect this is intentional. And in fact, Hitchcock himself, when he was standing there under that unblinking eye, was cast in a shadow. Is this to set a mood, or is there some other meaning to all of these shadows in this episode? Something having to do with the rat race, with desperation? If so, I can't quite pin it down. Yeah, it's a rat race, all right. You get home at night with your head ringing, a hole in your pocket, and an empty refrigerator. So now we have a pretty good handle on Dick. He's out of work, and we'll soon see that he appears to be a regular at the neighborhood bar. But we can assume that he is honestly looking for a job, as opposed to Victor Mature in the radio episode, who doesn't really want to get a job. And as a result of not having a job, he's broke. And, oh yeah, he's married, as we find out when we dissolve to a close-up of his wife Beth's hands washing the dishes in the sink. The camera pans up to show us that Beth is Joanne Woodward in a page boy haircut. Dick, now flesh and blood, 
comes up behind her, casting a shadow on the wall. So we're all done with seeing Dick as a ghost, unless you want to count, spoiler here, the very last seconds of the episode. Now, in case you didn't catch the bit about the empty refrigerator, here it comes again. Corny, would you put that in the icebox for me, please? Okay. Plenty of room for it. Yes, Father Hubbard, there certainly is. Okay, so it's bare. So if we do get evicted tomorrow, we won't have to lug a lot of stuff along with us. You know something? I find that very small consolation. Don't you worry. We won't get evicted. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to get some dough. What else? Tonight. Will you go to Burroughs? I like the way she refers to him as Father Hubbard with his bare cupboard. But it gets sort of swallowed up in that exchange, and it's easy to miss it. It's not just that the refrigerator is bare, though. We also find out they're about to be evicted the very next day. So we are dealing with two people who are justifiably desperate. When Dick says he's going to get money tonight, Beth asks if he's going to go to Burroughs. So what is that all about? What do I tell him? Honey, just tell him what happened. We both of us been sick, and we borrowed every cent we could, and it, you can't find a job. Now, he owes you $450, and he ought to pay it. I know that, but... Well, how can I say it? Honey, don't you remember what we planned for you to say? Mr. Bowes, I worked for your company for three years. In the last four months, I worked at half pay to help keep things going. Now, you said you'd pay me in full when things got better, but instead you sold out. Now, you've got the money, and I need it, and you ought to pay me now, right now. Now, honey, you remembered it perfectly well the other night when you had a couple of drinks. You were going to go over there and get every nickel. All right, all right. I forgot, that's all. There's some nice camera switching moments here where we go from looking at the person talking to going behind them to see the reaction of the person who's listening. When it comes to Beth's reactions, her face mostly expresses concern. And after Dick kisses her rather passionately and leaves the apartment, the camera stays with Beth, her shadow on the wall. And now her expression is one of thoughtfulness. Now, before Dick leaves, Beth asks him if he's going to go to Burroughs, and he says, if I have to. Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging, so it could be that that expression of thoughtfulness reveals that Beth has plans of her own. The scene dissolves not to Mr. Burroughs' home, but to a neighborhood bar. The camera behind the bartender as a customer drains his beer and then holds his glass up, asking for another. The bartender then turns, we see him in profile, and he speaks to somebody who's outside the frame of the shot. Hiya, boy. How's it going? The camera swings around behind the bartender again, and we see that the person he is speaking to is Dick. But let's not go there just yet. Instead, let's take some time to look at our leads, beginning with the better-known and more accomplished of the two, Joanne Woodward, who plays Beth. She was born Joanne Gigniliat Trimier Woodward in Thomasville, Georgia. Her father was at the time a school administrator, but later took a job with Charles Scribner's sons, eventually becoming vice president of publishing. Her mother was an avid movie buff and apparently named Joanne after Joan Crawford. And in fact, her mother took Joanne to Atlanta for the premiere of Gone with the Wind. As Wikipedia puts it, Nine-year-old Woodward rushed into the Parade of Stars and sat on the lap of Laurence Olivier, star Vivian Lee's partner, whom he would marry a year later. 
She eventually worked with Olivier in 1977 in a television production of Comeback Little Sheba. During rehearsals, she mentioned this incident to him, and he told her he remembered. According to IMDb, in her teens, Joanne entered and won many Georgia beauty contests. Her mother said that she was the prettiest girl in town, but all Joanne wanted to do was act, and she saw beauty contests as the first step toward her dream. Now, Joanne attended LSU, majoring in drama, but somewhere in there, her father got that job with Charles Scribner's sons, and the family moved to New York City. There, Joanne studied with Sanford Meisner, who helped Joanne get rid of her southern accent. In the early 1950s, she got a spot as an understudy in the Broadway show Picnic, and that is where she met Paul Newman. They hit it off and began a relationship, but Paul was already married, and his wife, at least initially, refused to grant him a divorce. When she finally agreed, Paul and Joanne were married less than a week after the divorce was finalized. Their marriage lasted for 50 years until Paul's death in September of 2008. And during those 50 years, they worked together often. First in 1958's The Long Hot Summer, then in Rally Round the Flag Boys, From the Terrace, Paris Blues, and A New Kind of Love. During that same period of time, Joanne also appeared with Marlon Brando in The Fugitive Kind, Sean Connery in A Fine Madness, and starred in The Stripper, for which she was coached by Gypsy Rose Lee. Then, in 1968, Joanne appeared in Rachel, Rachel, a film directed by Paul, in which she played a middle-aged schoolteacher hoping for love. The moon's so bright I can see the cemetery. Well, that grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. What's wrong? I just wanted to be so... Don't worry, love. It's never much good the first time. Is it so obvious, then? Is what so obvious? That it's the first time for me. You don't have to play the virgin. I'm not going to go around saying you're a whore. Joanne was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar for her role in that film and did win the New York Film Critics Circle Best Actress Award. In 1972, again directed by Paul, she appeared in the film version of the Pulitzer Prize winning play The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds playing an alcoholic single mother estranged from her two daughters, one of whom was played by her actual daughter, Nell, and she won the Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival for that performance. In 1973, she was again nominated for Best Actress in the Oscars for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams, in which she played a depressed housewife who suffers a midlife crisis when her mother dies. Her fourth and last Academy Award nomination was in 1990's Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Set in the 1930s, she played a woman who spent most of her life lost in the shadow of her conservative lawyer husband, who was played by Paul Newman. Walter? Hmm. I was wondering, have you ever read Veblen? Are you listening? Read what? Veblen, Thorsten Veblen, the theory of the leisure class. Uh, Mabel told me about it. India, for Pete's sake. It's been a long day. I'm tired. Yes, 
spend my evening talking about a book written by some socialist crackpot. And as far as I'm concerned, that Mabel friend of yours is one of them. A few years later, in 1993, she played Tom Hanks's mother in the film Philadelphia and was the narrator of Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. Her last collaboration with Paul was in 2005 in the miniseries Empire Falls. During the course of her career, Joanne was nominated for four Academy Awards for Best Actress, winning once, ten Golden Globe Awards, winning three times, and nine Primetime Emmy Awards, again winning three times. She won her Emmys for 1978's See How She Runs, the story of a divorced schoolteacher who changes her life when she runs in the Boston Marathon, 1985's Do You Remember Love, in which she plays, sadly, prophetically, a woman suffering from Alzheimer's, and as the producer of Broadway's Dreamers, The Legacy of the Group Theater in 1990. Also for television, she made her directing debut in 1979 with an episode of the series Family, and she directed and wrote the screenplay for Come Along With Me in 1982, based on Shirley Jackson's short story. Now, her three Golden Globe Awards were all for Best Actress, one in 1995 for the TV movie Breathing Lessons, one in 1969 for Rachel Rachel, and the third, well, those of you familiar with Joanne Woodward know I've been skipping something along the way, and it's not her appearance in the Tales of Tomorrow episode, The Bitter Storm. No, it's the 1958 film for which she not only won that Golden Globe, but the Best Actress Oscar, The Three Faces of Eve. In it, Joanne played a young woman suffering from disassociative identity disorder, manifesting itself into three personalities, Eve White, but the fact you may be having spells of amnesia doesn't mean that you're what you call losing your mind. Doesn't mean that at all. No use. Because I am. You don't want to tell me, but I know it now. How do you know, Mrs. White? Because now I'm hearing voices, too. What kind of voices? Just one voice. But that's what that means, doesn't it? How long has this been going on? For months. Why didn't you tell me this before? What does this voice say to you? She tells me to do things. A woman's voice. Can you recognize it in any way? No, sir. It sounds familiar sometimes, but I don't really recognize it. What does this voice tell you to do? To do things like Leave Ralph, take Bonnie and run away. All kind of terrible things like that. Eve Black, a name used, by the way, by Stephen King and Owen King for their supernormal character in their 2017 novel, Sleeping Beauties. Hi. Feeling better now? I feel fine. Was it a headache? No. I didn't have no headache. She had one, but I didn't. She? Hey, you got a nice place around here. Oh, she always gets those headaches when I want to come out. And she's a real dope, don't you? Who are you talking about? Eve White. 
these hoes. They have nylon. I'm allergic to nylon. I think I'll take them off. You don't mind, do you? If you like. I think you better turn around, though. You're kind of cute, but I don't think I know you that well. Maybe sometime, though, huh? Hey, you like to go dancing? Sometimes. Would you like to go dancing with me? Okay, you can turn around now. So you're not Eve White? I certainly am not. Hey, maybe one night this week, you can tell your wife you got to see a patient. And do what? Go dancing. I bet you're a real cute dancer. I doubt if my wife would agree with you about that. But getting back to the point here, if you're not Eve White, who are you? Now, what you trying to do, kid me? Seems more likely you're trying to kid me. I'm Eve Black. You know that. And Jane. Who are you? What do you think? I have no idea. Ask who you are. I don't know that either. Would you excuse me for a minute? Certainly. How's your heart? Can you take another one? You're kidding. Come on. Do you remember Dr. Day? How do you do, Doctor? How do you do? Oh, well, then you must be Dr. Uh... Luther. Luther, yes, of course. I should have known. You mean you have heard of me? Yes, through both Eve White and Eve Black. Hmm. Not unfavorably, I trust. <laughs> On the contrary, they think very highly of you, both of them. Are we to understand, uh, this is a little awkward, but uh, are we to understand that you're no longer Mrs. White? No, I'm not. Nor Eve Black? No. Then may I ask, what is your name? I don't know. Well, you do know Mrs. White and Miss Black, don't you? I know them in a way. I don't think I know them very well. Well, you know they're... Uh, uh... Yes, I understand that. Pretty bewildering thing, too, isn't it? I should say you were well within your rights in so describing the situation. And may I add, it seems to grow no less so with the passage of time. Well, I wish I understood it better. How long? As I say, it's not easy to phrase these questions without sounding like an idiot, but uh, how long have you, uh, well, been around? I don't know, but I don't think it could have been very long. What do you know about Mrs. White? Oh, what about Jane? Jane who? Oh, I mean for my name, Jane. Well, why Jane? Why not? This performance influenced her career in interesting ways, not only resulting in a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at the age of 30, but also in two subsequent roles. 
But before we get to those, let's get back to that star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. History.com says hers was the first star, but Wikipedia says a popular but untrue bit of Hollywood lore is that Woodward was the first celebrity to receive a star. In fact, the original 1,550 stars were created and installed as a unit in 1960, so no one star was officially first. The first star actually completed was director Stanley Kramer. So, where does the legend come from? Well, it appears that Joanne was the first person to pose for photographs next to her star. Those photographs leading people to think that she was the first person to get a star. Now, what about those subsequent roles? First of all, she was in They Might Be Giants. You can hear in the alley by the light switch Who watches over you Make a little birdhouse in your soul Not to put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only bee Well, no, not the group, but the 1971 film, from which the group got their name. In it, Joanne plays Dr. Mildred Watson, a psychiatrist, who takes on a patient, played by George C. Scott, who believes that he is Sherlock Holmes. You look closely down there, Watson, you can see principles. You see the possibility of justice and proportion. You can see men move their own lives. There are no masses in Virginia City, only individuals whose will for good or bad can bring them to the ends they ought to have. I like that very much. Oh. Why did I have to meet you now? What's wrong with now? We're together and we're after Moriarty. There isn't any Moriarty. There is. You dreamt him up. If I am Holmes, there has got to be a Moriarty. Well, what if you're not Holmes? And even closer to her three faces of Eve Holmes, Joanne plays the psychiatrist to Sally Field's disassociative identity disorder patient in the 1976 TV miniseries, Sybil. I'm sorry, you asked me something? No, you were just telling me about your symptoms. Your uh, tunnel vision and your bumping into walls and... Yes, yes, I know. Sometimes when I'm heading for the door, by mistake, I... What is it? This is your office? Yes. But... No, without looking at your watch. Tell me what you just said. Is it so important? Yes. I said, is this your office? That was a half an hour ago. It's nighttime now. I didn't... I didn't want you to know. Yes, you did. At the time of this recording, Joanne Woodward is 91 years old. But sadly, according to this YouTube clip and other sources, she has Alzheimer's disease. A source close to the family has confirmed that Woodward's health is rapidly deteriorating. Tragically, she only remembers that she was once married to someone every once in a while. Most of the time, she struggles to even remember who she is. Woodward developed the first symptoms of Alzheimer's shortly after her husband passed in 2008. Her daughters were the ones who started to notice something was wrong. It became clear their mother seemed increasingly more disoriented. She was more forgetful. 
things they would never have expected for her to forget, seemed to drift away with increasing frequency. The disease got worse and worse until she eventually had to be put under 24-7 care. She can barely speak and rarely recognizes her own family. Even her children and grandchildren seem like complete strangers most days. This is Joanne's only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Skip Holmeyer's career did not reach the heights that Joanne Woodward's did, but he still has plenty of credits, mostly on television. I could be snarky here and say that no one who calls himself Skip was ever going to be a movie star. But the Skip actually comes from Skippy, as he was billed starting at the age of six. Here's what IMDb has to say. A prolific young performer, child juvenile Skippy Holmeyer, was born George Vincent Holmeyer on October 5, 1930. Beginning on radio in his native Chicago at age six in Portia Faces Life, he came to films at age 14 with Tomorrow the World, which was originally a 1943 Broadway drama starring Skippy, Ralph Bellamy, and Shirley Booth. Recreating his role of Emil Bruckner, he received excellent reviews for his chilling portrayal of a callous Nazi youth, this time opposite Frederick March and Betty Field. Not the last time he'll play a Nazi, as we shall see. The fair, oval-faced, tussle-haired blonde remained an often troublesome, unsympathetic teen in post-war films such as Boy's Ranch as an incorrigible character named Knuckles, but he also displayed his charms with his jitterbugging title teen in Arthur Takes Over and likable young character in Mickey. Growing into adult roles, now billed as Skip Homeyer or G.V. Homeyer, he continued at a more menacing pace in movie westerns and crime dramas, notably Halls of Montezuma, the Gunfighter as Gregory Peck's nemesis, Cry Vengeance as an albino hitman, Stranger at My Door, and The Tall T. From that point on, at 1957, he was mostly on television, though he did have a few other film roles, playing opposite Beverly Garland in Stark Fear in 1962, appearing with Audie Murphy in Showdown in 1963, and Bullet for a Man in 1964, and as Don Knotts' nemesis in 1966's The Ghost in Mr. Chicken. You're really going in there, huh? Of course I'm going in there. What do you think I came out here for, not to go in there? Well, don't get so excited, fella. Well, you know why I'm excited? I'll tell you why I'm excited. Because of you. That's why I'm excited. Oh, come on, Luther. Now, you're scared and you know it. You want me to go in there with you? No, I don't want you to go in there with me. Oh, you'd love that, wouldn't you? Sharing all the glory. Well, for your information, fella, I work single alone. Just me, myself, and I. Okay, Ace, she's all yours. See you around. He did have a couple of recurring roles in TV series. He was Dr. Hugh Jacoby in 16 episodes of the 1970 series The Interns. And he was Dan Raven in the 1960 series, Dan Raven. Here he is in a scene from that series, along with guest star Bobby Darren. Raven, how could he do that to me? How could he hang up on me like that? You know what friends we used to be? Well, maybe he's just scared. Maybe it's a couple of other things. Like what? Like we're going to have to play this by ear. Look, Bob, I'm just a cop. 
Sometimes I can't wait for the lyrics. I've got to fill in the music myself. I recorded the telephone conversation of yours when I called you from my office. Thanks a lot. I hope it did something for you. It may do something for you. We've only got a couple of hours left to get you out of the middle. You want to try a shot with me? At this point? Anything you say. Yes, he sounds a little wooden there. But to be fair, the dialogue he has to speak is pretty awful. Most of his roles, though, were guest spots on other television series, such as Perry Mason, Rawhide, Bonanza, Combat, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Mission Impossible, Lassie, Longstreet, Policewoman, The Streets of San Francisco, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and The Incredible Hulk. But he's possibly best known for two different roles in the original series of Star Trek. First, as the Nazi Melikon in the episode Patterns of Force. Hail Fuhrer! Hail Fuhrer! Hail Fuhrer! The Fuhrer has given us our orders, and we pledge him our lives in this sacred task. Death to Zeon! Death to Zeon! Death to Zeon! And as Dr. Severin in the episode The Way to Eden, including this scene, which feels very familiar today. What's going on, Bob? Trouble. Friend here didn't want to check up. Turns out there's a reason. I refuse to accept your findings. You don't have the choice. They're the product of prejudice, not science. I don't know what this man was planning on doing on a primitive planet, but assuming one did exist, I can tell you what would have happened had he settled it. Untrue? There would have been enough of those primitives left to bury their dead. Fantasy, fantasy. I wish it were. There's a nasty little bug evolved in the last few years, Jim. Our septic sterilized civilizations produced it. Since the Caucus Novi, it's deadly. We can immunize against it, but we haven't learned to lick all the problems yet. Does he have it? What about the others? Well, the others are clear. He doesn't have it. He's a carrier. Remember your ancient history, Typhoid Mary? He's immune to it, as she was. But he carries the disease and spreads it to others. Is the crew in danger? I don't know. They all had full-spectrum immunizations before boarding. Now, my guess is that his friends have had their shots, too. But a regular program of booster shots is necessary. I'll have to check everyone on the ship. There could be some skips. In the meantime, he should be placed in total isolation. This is outrageous. You're not isolating me, you're imprisoning me. You invent the crime, find me guilty, and sentence me. Would you like to run the test yourself, doctor? You knew you were a carrier before you came aboard, didn't you? No. Then why did you fight the examination? It was an infringement on my rights. Put him in isolation. For you anthology fans out there, he is in the suspense episode, Night of Evil, three science fiction theater episodes, The Living Lights, The Other Side of the Moon, and Death at 2 a.m. The One Step Beyond episode, The Bride Possessed, the 1960s suspense episode, Brother Lathrop, and the Outer Limits episode, Expanding Human. Skip retired in 1982, and he died in 2017 at the age of 86. This is his first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. His next and last is The Motive. Episode 17 of Season 3. Let's get back to the bar where Dick is having a conversation with Charlie, the bartender. Hey, Charlie, you think maybe you could... Well, you know, you said you thought, gee, I'm sorry, kid, I, I ain't got it. I thought I did. I had that jack away in the seventh today. He'd have paid 30 to 1, but 4 to finish. They voted me out of it. I'll buy you a drink. Thanks. I'm sorry, Dick. If I had it. You know that. Yeah, it's not your fault. 
I believe this is the first time we have heard Dick's name in this episode. We still haven't heard Beth's name. And as Charlie leaves to help another customer, the camera stays on Dick, and it moves in on a close-up as he considers whose fault it is. It's nobody's fault, except Burroughs. And deciding that, he turns down another drink and races out the door as the shot dissolves to him walking along a sidewalk heading towards Burroughs' house, which is our cue to take a look at Charlie the bartender because we won't be seeing him again. He was played by Billy Newell, sometimes credited as William Newell. In fact, a look at his IMDb bio shows that he tended to go by Billy whenever he played a bartender. Hal Erickson on Fandango.com says, In films from 1935 to 1964, American character actor William Billy Newell was nearly always seen with his hat tilted backward and with a spent cigarette or wad of gum in his mouth. This is because Newell was usually cast as a wise-lipped reporter or news photographer. One of his largest assignments in this vein was as news hound Speed Martin in the 1940 Republic serial The Mysterious Dr. Satan. Wikipedia says Newell was most active in the 1930s, familiar to fans of the R Gang short subjects in his recurring role as Alfalfa's father and as Dr. Henley on R. Miss Brooks. And IMDb notes that he and his sister Elsa performed at the twice-nightly variety show at the Holborn Empire Theatre in Holborn, London, England, with Will Hay and his company, The Bells, Eddie Hanley, The Three Australian Boys, Danny Tipton Three, Will Summers, the Houston Sisters, G.S. Melvin, and Laurel Brothers in the cast. Now, along the way, Billy was in a number of acclaimed films, such as San Francisco, The Libeled Lady, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, The Lost Weekend, The Best Years of Our Lives, and High Noon. But he was also in B-movie and horror fare, such as The Invisible Man Returns and House of Horrors. Here's the same clip from that film I used last time, talking about The Creeper, only extended a little bit so we can hear Billy's lines as Jerry, the deputy coroner. You say her spine was snapped, Doc. Yeah. Roll her back, Jerry. Back you go, my lovely. Remember the Dawson girl? You mean the one who was murdered up on Riverside Drive? That's right. Anything in this killing reminds you of that one? Sure it does. Dawson girl's spine was snapped, too. Uh-huh. That was one of the Creeper's little jobs. This dame couldn't have been murdered by the Creeper. He's dead. So I read in the papers. But they didn't find his body when they dragged the river, did they? No, they didn't. Gee, if the Creeper's still alive, I'm going to put in some overtime. By the end of his career, Billy appeared in a whole lot of TV comedies. Leave it to Beaver... Pete and Gladys, The Real McCoys, The Andy Griffith Show, and The Beverly Hillbillies. His last credit is in 1965 in an episode of Gomer Pyle. This is his first of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. His next is A Very Moral Theft, episode three of season six, where he is credited as William Newell. And Billy Newell died in 1967 at the age of 73. Now let's take a walk with Dick on the sidewalk alongside a white picket fence. He turns in at the house and walks up onto the front porch. It's large and open and is supported by small white pillars. Quite a contrast to the small apartment in which Dick and Beth live. 
Now, in case we have any doubts about whose house this is, we get a close-up shot of Dick's hand as he prepares to ring the doorbell. Next to that doorbell is the mailbox, and written quite clearly on the mailbox, it says A.T. Burroughs. But Dick never gets a chance to press that doorbell because he hears voices inside. Or rather, quite pointedly, he only hears one voice, that of Burroughs. And this seems to spur him back into narrator mode. You know, I appreciate your coming here like this. Let's go into the study and we can get the matter settled right away. He's got company. I can't hit him for it now. He gets sore at me for embarrassing him. Here now is where things start to get a little wobbly. In the original story, Dick doesn't ring the doorbell because he's actually planning to rob Burroughs if Burroughs won't give him the money. And he's afraid if he asks and is refused and then robs Burroughs, Burroughs will know who did it. But here, in his effort to make Dick a nice guy, Francis Cockrell tells us that Dick doesn't ring the doorbell because he's afraid Burroughs will get mad for embarrassing him in front of his guest. Although Burroughs could certainly find a place in the house to speak to Dick without his guest able to listen in. And then we get a sequence in which Dick somehow never sees the guest or hears the guest. First, Dick leaves the porch and goes around to spy into the study window. He peers in, and we get a point-of-view shot through the window of Burroughs standing there smiling and talking to somebody. But our angle is wrong, and the curtain is in the way, and we don't see who he's talking to. But we can guess, can't we? Note how Dick could hear Burroughs through the front door, but not through the window, which is awfully inconvenient for him, because that way he never hears the other person. Also inconvenient is that Burroughs' desk is right by the window, so Dick can see him pull out a strong box and open it to count out money, but the person he's giving it to does not stand over at the desk, as you would think they usually would, so we still cannot see them. It is a nice shot of Dick looking in the window, watching Burroughs count out the money, though. Burroughs gets up, goes over to smilingly hand money over to whoever is behind that curtain. We and Dick still can't see them, and then the light goes out in the study. Dick stays by the window as we hear the front door open, and we stay with him as we hear Burroughs say goodnight. But again, no reply from the person, just the sound of footsteps walking away. Dick stays behind the bushes through all of this. When he finally gets out from the bushes and walks around to the front door, he doesn't look around to see who might be right in view walking on the sidewalk. Then as he approaches the door, supposedly to finally ring the doorbell, the lights in the house go out. So how many circumstances do we have to have to make sure that Dick does not know who was in the house getting the money and to make sure that he doesn't ring that doorbell? Far too many. And on top of that, Dick apparently decides that it's more reasonable to break into Burroughs' office and steal the money rather than ring the doorbell and force Burroughs to turn his lights on again. It's all possible, but it also feels too set up. I'm sure as the writer, Francis Cockrell is aware of all this, which is why he tries to distract us by giving us Dick's narration now in the form of his thoughts. Wonder who's in there, Mother. Maybe I better come back later. No. We've got to have that money now. Look at that wallet. He can't say he doesn't have it. Must be a couple of thousand there, and Beth and I don't have five dollars between us. He's going to pay me. No stalls, no arguments, Mr. Burroughs. Just 450 bucks. Now. Just 450. I don't want any more. I think this might be the first time Beth's name is mentioned in the episode. 
But note how in the writing, Francis first has Dick wonder who's in there with Burroughs and then drop that completely as he focuses on the money, the amount of the money, how much money Burroughs has, how much money Beth and Dick need. It's all the money, 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 rather than who he's giving the money to. A kind of narrative sleight of hand to keep us from focusing on all those coincidences. So now Dick comes around to the window again. He opens it easily. It's not locked, which seems like a bad idea, seeing as you have $1,000 at least in a small box right there in your desk, which is right by the window. We switch from the outside with him to the inside with him as he turns on the desk light. Now, wouldn't you think, since he knows where the box is, that he could take it out, go outside in the bushes, open it up, take his money, put it back in without turning on a light? But no, he turns on the desk light, creating a big shadow of him up on the window and on the wall. And in fact, that shadow seems to follow him around the room a little bit. So that desk lamp is throwing off a whole heck of a lot of light. The box is locked, of course, so he grabs a letter opener and tries to jimmy it, but has no luck. So he looks around and finds a fireplace in the room. He takes a poker and uses that to open the box. He pulls out a wad of cash that has a rubber band around it. He removes that and leans in so that the money is under the light and starts counting out his cash. He takes his money, closes the box without putting the rubber band back around the wad of cash, so Burroughs would certainly know that he was robbed the next time he checked. Well, the lock is probably busted now, so he'd know anyway, and turns off the light. Then we get two very nice shots. First, the door to the room opens, illuminating a square on the wall behind Dick. A big part of that square is filled in by the shadow of the head of the person who is entering the room, that shadow looming large behind Dick. That person is Burroughs, and we switch to him at the door, and he is holding a gun. Our second nice shot follows. Burroughs in the background on the left, Dick in the foreground on the right, both facing us, with Burroughs lit from the light in the hallway and Dick lit from below, giving us that flashlight under your chin creepy sort of look. Where's the light source? Who knows? It's still a nice effect. Burroughs turns the light in the room on and Dick turns to look at him. And then Burroughs says... Hey, you're the last person I, I'm going to call the police. What does he mean by that? Well, we get it, don't we? But Dick still doesn't get it. There's a sheen of sweat on Dick's face as Burroughs goes to the phone to talk to the operator. Before he can get the police, though, Dick charges him, and they struggle briefly. Even now, as bad as this is, Dick could still stop and explain, show that he's only taking the money he feels is owed to him. Then the gun goes off. We see this from behind Burroughs, his back filling the screen. But after the shot, he sags, trying to pull himself up, grabbing Dick's shoulders. But then he falls. We don't follow him down. We stay on Dick as he looks down at Burroughs. But now the camera cuts down to the floor where Burroughs lies, the gun still in his hand. Dick kneels down and checks him. Then we go back to a sweaty close-up of Dick as he wipes his forehead, and we don't need to be told that Burroughs is dead. So what does Dick do? Well, he takes the gun out of Burroughs' dead hand, and he leaves by the window. This is the first in a series of wrong moves that Dick makes. First of all, there's no actual murder here. They struggle, and the gun goes off. Now, granted, Dick is robbing him, 
So he probably doesn't want to call the police. They're bound to arrest him for murder. But there's also no need to take that gun. It's Burroughs' gun. It was in Burroughs' hand the entire time. There's no evidence that Dick was even there. In the short story and in the radio show, Dick gets himself deeper and deeper into trouble because he continues to kill people. And it's the killing of those people that lead the police to him. In our case, there's really no reason why anyone would associate him with the death of Burroughs at all. So in spite of his feelings of guilt and remorse, there's no reason why Dick should feel that he is in trouble with the police. And yet that's pretty much the only thing he feels for the rest of the episode. And so we dissolve back to Dick and Beth's apartment, with Dick coming home late, Beth already in bed, his shadow big on the door. First, though, let's take a look at Ken Christie, who played Mr. Burroughs. He was born Robert Kenneth Christie, and his early acting career was mostly on radio. He spent nearly 30 years there, playing Mr. Bonds on Little Orphan Annie, the chief of police on The Great Gildersleeve, and appearing in episodes of Gangbusters, Jack Armstrong, The All-American Boy, The Saint, A Day in the Life of Dennis Day, The Alan Young Show, and in several episodes of Suspense, including the episode entitled The Visitor. I'm looking for someone. Yeah? Your name wouldn't be Bud Owen, would it? They call me Bill Dawkin around here. That's not what I asked. So? I'm looking for a boy named Bud Owen. What about him? Disappeared from his home about three years ago. A boy from my town. He'd be about your age now, about 18? 17. That's it. Well, his folks have been worried sick about him. Everyone else gave him up for dead. Then I heard you were working here, bud. His TV credits include Death Valley Days, I Love Lucy, Dragnet, The Adventures of Superman, and the science fiction theater episode, The Miracle Hour. And his film credits include Sunset Boulevard, Tarzan's New York Adventure, A Place in the Sun, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, and a small role as a plainclothes detective in Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Who's Joe? He might be anybody. I don't know. Maybe we better call a psychopathic. In fact, Ken ended up playing a whole lot of cops in his career, so much so that he complained about it. In an article from the Shemokin, Pennsylvania News Dispatch, dated October 6, 1950. Typecasting in Hollywood can drive a man to crime, claims character actor Ken Christie, who now has a tremendous yearning to get on the wrong side of the law. The reason for Christie's strong illegal aspirations is that in 98 out of 100 film roles, he has played an officer of the law. His latest police portrayal is as Officer Kowalski, the cop who shoots and arrests Richard Whitmark in Daryl F. Zanuck's No Way Out. That picture is appropriately titled, as far as I'm concerned, because there certainly seems no way out for me, Christie complains. I'd give anything to stop making arrests and be the guy who commits the crime for once. I've probably had more vicarious years on the police force than many a veteran patrolman. Having recently portrayed detectives in Trapped and Sunset Boulevard, Christie now feels that the only way for him to get on the wrong side of the law is not to rely on the movies, but to commit a real crime. After 98 police parts... He probably won't. This is his first of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. His next is in A Man Greatly Beloved, episode 33 of season two. And he has two more Alfred Hitchcock connections. He is in the radio play version of Strangers on a Train, and he portrays the fake Dutch detective in Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent. 
in which even as a bad guy, he is still posing as the police. All right, come in. Mr. Haverstock? Yes? What are you, the house detective? You weren't announced. I'm sorry, sir, we, we asked at the desk. And Ken Christie died in 1962 at the age of 67. Back to Dick and his shadow entering the apartment. He sits down on the couch and falls asleep there. We fade to black and then fade up again the next morning as the camera pans up to show Beth in her robe with her shadow behind her coming from the bedroom. She kisses him to wake him up. Hey, silly. What are you doing out here? Why didn't you come to bed last night? I didn't want to wake you. Oh, you didn't get the money? Don't worry. No, no, I got it. You did? Where? Well, from Charlie. He had a long shot in the sixth. Well, I didn't think you got it from Burroughs. I didn't go to see Burroughs. It wasn't necessary. We can forget him. All right, I was just going to tell Beth, you. will you please just drop it? Three more hints there from Beth. First, you didn't get the money. Don't worry. Second, I didn't think you got it from Burroughs. And third, I was going to tell you, none of which break through to an explanation for Dick. There's a nice shot in all of this with the camera in the bathroom looking through open doors straight through the bedroom and the living room as Dick and Beth walk through so that Dick can put water on his face. And more coincidence, as Beth is perhaps about to tell Dick that she has the money from Burroughs. We all knew that, right? That Beth was the one that was in the room with Burroughs? There's a knock at the door. Now, again, there's no reason to think that the police would be on to Dick at this point. But still, he panics. He grabs Beth as she's on her way to the front door, tells her to stay in the bedroom, closes the door, and pulls out the gun. Who is it? It's Martin, the janitor. Okay, just a minute. Someone to see the apartment. This is the living room. Yeah. Can I see the bedroom? You're right in there. Oh, just a minute. Beth, there's a man here that wants to see the apartment. No sense in showing the apartment now. Ain't much, is it? Brother, you find something better for the money, take it. Yeah, I will. Another hint from Beth. No sense showing the apartment now. And did you recognize the voice of the man looking at the apartment? It's Harry Tyler in his sixth appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. After premonition, and so died Rhea Bushinska, Place of Shadows, Portrait of Jocelyn, and Decoy. He has five more episodes to go. His next is Alibi Me, episode seven of season two. Martin the janitor was played by Frank Craig. There's not much information on Frank. In fact, Louis the movie buff at the filmbuffLouis.blogspot.com says there is no information on his birth or death in either IMDb or Wikipedia but it is a certainty that the actor has passed on. Frank has 80 listed credits on IMDb. In many of them, he either plays a bartender or a drunk, such as in The Twinkle in God's Eye, where he's a bartender, and Jailhouse Rock, where he's a drunk. But he also plays the brain 
in two episodes of The Adventures of Superman, the race starter... ...in The Great Race, and Fiddler Hawkins in George Pal's The War of the Worlds. I got a message for you. You're the guys from Pacific Tech, ain't you? Right. Looks like the fishing was good. Have some. Well, I might just do that. It's about that meteor. They say it's a wop. The district office has phoned us at the lookout up in the summit. I thought you might be interested. About 10 or 12 miles from here, over by Linda Rosa. Are they sure it's a meteor? It didn't come down like one. That's right. Came down in kind of spurts, didn't it? Well, you fellows have to figure it out. You're scientists. All I know is they say it's as big as a house and practically red hot. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. The two men leave. And Dick locks the door behind them, putting the chain on. Beth wonders what's going on. Listen, why did you shush me? Because we've got to get out of here. I got in some trouble last night. It was a mistake, but it's done. Dick. Look, I don't want to tell you anything about it. I don't want you to get mixed up in it. Oh, darling, I am mixed up in it. If you are, I am. If you don't know anything about it, you can't tell anybody if they should ask. I'll explain it all to you later. Right now, we've got to get out of here. Are the police after you? Maybe. I don't know. Look, will you please help me if you want to? But don't talk about it anymore if you're going with me. Oh, darling, of course I am. I'll go start packing. As Beth goes into the bedroom, the camera pulls in for another close-up of a very nervous dick, and we go to commercial. When we return, Beth is dressed and packed and ready to go, but Dick is looking out the window. We get a point-of-view shot of what he's looking at, a man reading the newspaper, hanging out in the alcove of the store across the street, his shadow cast on the window of the store's door. Dick is convinced that this man is outside waiting for him. So he decides to change the plan. You go on alone. It would be better if we weren't seen together now anyway. I'll watch him, and if it looks like nothing's up, I'll sneak out later, maybe the back way, and join you. Here, take some money. Get two bus tickets to Mexico. No, no, make it San Diego. Nobody will notice that. Well, they might notice that, seeing as you're coming from New York. But are they in New York? It sure seemed to me that they were in New York. They are certainly in New York in the short story and the radio play. In any event, Dick leads Beth to the front door. He promises that he'll meet her at the bus station. They have another passionate kiss, but this time it is Dick who stays behind and then turns and faces the camera. He returns to the window, and we get another point-of-view shot of the man with the newspaper as Beth crosses the street and walks right by him. Seconds after that, the man folds up his newspaper and appears to be following her. Dick certainly thinks so. He races out of the apartment, runs down the stairs. We get a shot of him from behind as he goes down the last flight of stairs towards the front door. And the stairs and the door look to me like something out of Psycho, only that's still four years in the future. His shadow cast on the wall as he runs down the stairs. Then we're outside with him, looking towards the building from which he came. There's a sign on it that says, West Side Apartments, Reasonable Rates. Apartments abbreviated as APT apostrophe S. I don't think that apostrophe should be there. Now, if you're asking yourself why Beth bothered to walk right by the man with the newspaper when she knew that Dick considered him suspicious, 
Well, it appears that Beth was catching a bus to the bus station. And as Dick runs out onto the street, the bus is there. Beth has apparently already boarded. And the man with the newspaper walks behind the bus. But when the bus pulls away, the man is still there, joined by a woman. Tell a half hour I've been waiting here. Nobody let me in. Well, it's not my fault you forgot your key. Next time, take it with you. Oh, you yeah, sure. well, I so, false alarm. Dick goes back up to his apartment and he starts packing, putting his clothes and the gun in his suitcase. But then there's a knock at the door, a guy calling. Come on, Payne, open up. So, Dick pulls the gun out of the suitcase and goes to the door. This time, he opens the door and puts his foot against it, but doesn't put the chain on, which is convenient for the story because the guy on the other side of the door forces his way in. Don't try to kid me, Payne. I saw your wife leave with her suitcase just a few minutes ago. And now you're skipping out. But you're not going anyplace. Except that Dick pulls the gun on him and tries to get him to go into the bedroom. Unfortunately, just at that moment, the phone rings and Dick turns his head. Now who's calling Dick or who's calling Beth? We never find out. It's just another convenient coincidence. Yet another thing to propel the plot along. While Dick turns his head, the man jumps him, and they struggle. Now, the last time we had a gun go off, the camera hid behind Burroughs' back, so we didn't see what actually happened. This time, the camera shies away so that we don't see it at all. In the tussle, Dick's suitcase falls on the floor, and the camera looks down at that. It's not until the gun goes off that the camera looks up at the two men who are now on the floor. So the approach to filming the two different struggles is different, but the result is the same. In each case, the man who is holding the gun is the one who is shot. And in this case, that man is Dick. Dick still has the gun, so he points it at the man again. Get in there! I warned you nobody's going to arrest me. But I'm not a cop. I came to collect the payments. I'm from the finance company. He shows Dick a bill, which we can read in its entirety, thanks to the magic of pausing the video. It's from the Star Finance Company, and it lists the payments for which Dick is in arrears. Radio, June 14, 1956, $22. Watch, June 18, $12. Radio, July 14, $22. Watch, July 18th, $12. So let me get this straight. Dick and Beth are buying a radio and a watch on the installment plan? Don't you think if they can't even afford food or their apartment that these might be things they could do without? Well, don't worry, because after a long shot of Dick digesting this information, the scene shifts to an alley in which Dick exits the apartment through the back door. Now, what did he do with the finance guy? Well, he's going to tell us. That finance guy, by the way, was played by Henry Hunter, who was born Frederick Arthur Jacobson, Jr. His first film role was in 1936's Nobody's Fool, in which he played Doc. And while he played many other roles, he seemed to get cast as doctors over and over again. He's in seven episodes of Perry Mason, in two of which he plays a doctor. And he is a doctor in episodes of The Bold Ones, The Lawyers... Family Affair, Bewitched, Laredo, The Farmer's Daughter, Hazel, McHale's Navy, Stony Burke, The Wide Country, 77 Sunset Strip, 
The Ann Southern Show, Laramie, Wagon Train, General Electric Theater, The Millionaire, Alcoa Theater, State Trooper, Rescue 8, Whirly Birds, Lux Video Theater, Medic, Navy Log, and in the Twilight Zone episode, Long Distance Call. She isn't in any pain. Can we see her? I wouldn't advise it, not that it would hurt her, but I, I don't think she'd even recognize you. Oh, we'd recognize her. All right, Chris. He is also in two thriller episodes, Choose a Victim and The Incredible Dr. Markison, in which he does not play the doctor. This is his only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Henry Hunter died in 1985 at the age of 77. So what did happen to the finance man? I locked the guy from the finance company in the closet. And did you hear the siren in the background? The police are coming. Why are the police coming? Someone reported the shot? The finance company guy made a phone call from the closet? Whatever the reason, they get there pretty fast. After all, Dick just left the building himself. And then they pull into the alley and go in through the back door. Guns drawn, which seems a little extreme. So why don't they find Dick? Because he's hidden himself in one of the stairway wells until the cops have gone inside. Then he emerges, looking faint and holding his side where he was shot, and comes out of the shadows just as a cab is going by. He gives a sort of half-hearted whistle. Taxi! That the cabbie hears so that he not only stops, he even backs up. Dick gets in and the camera perches itself on the dashboard so that we see the driver on the right and Dick in the back seat on the left. And behind him, through the rear window, some rather ineffective rear screen projection. But it is in the great Hitchcock tradition. Where to, buddy? Just go ahead, I'll tell you. Okay, pal. What time is it? Quarter to 10. Take me out to Oakside. Whatever you say, Governor. So now we know the time, quarter to 10. Did we know what time the bus was going to leave? Now, there's a bus every hour. I'll be there at 11. If I'm not there, you get on anyway and save me a seat. I'll be there, darling. I promise you. Looks like we did. He's got 75 minutes to kill. And okay, he's shot and the police may be after him, but why he doesn't go just directly to the bus station and be with Beth, I don't know. He tells the cabbie to take him to Oakside. So where is Oakside? Well, as far as I can tell, it's nowhere, or everywhere. It doesn't really matter. Now, the cab driver is played by Mike Reagan, and we've seen him once before in Breakdown, Episode 7, where he was one of the escaped convicts. And in that episode, when I talked about Mike, I mentioned that his next episode was Momentum, Episode 29. If it had been Episode 29, we would have finished with it a long time ago. In any event, Mike has five more appearances in Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is Kill with Kindness, Episode 4 of Season 2. Dick settles into the back seat and falls asleep. The cabbie wakes him. Whereabouts in Oakside, pal? Hey, are you asleep or something? What? I said we're in Oakside. Whereabouts you want to go? What time is it? 20 after 10. Take me to the main bus station. Look, sport. You sure you got plenty of money? This trip is beginning to add up. Don't worry. 
Money is the least of my worries. So it's 20 after 10. It took 35 minutes to get to Oakside. And Oakside, looking through the rear window of the cab, looks exactly the same as wherever it was when we started out. Dick still has 40 minutes to kill, but he tells the cabbie to take him to the bus station in Oakside, which is where Beth is waiting for him. She took a bus to Oakside so that they can then get a bus to San Diego? Well, sure, it's the old Oakside to San Diego bus route. Everybody knows that. And so we segue to Beth, who is at the Oakside bus station. She buys two tickets to San Diego and then sits on a bench. There's a man on another bench facing the other way who's reading the funny papers. He turns and sees her, starts to say something, tips his cap. He's wearing a uniform. Maybe he's a bus driver, but she turns away from him. So he gives up on the idea. And then we're back to Dick and the cabbie, who now seem to be out in the country. So where is this Oakside bus station? Sometime between the last time we were with Dick and the cabbie, and now, the cabbie has put the radio on. And this is not good timing for Dick. And now between records, here's a news item. There's a citywide dragnet out for Richard Payne. Late last night, Payne shot and fatally wounded A.T. Burroughs of 1942 East Walden Street. Burroughs surprised Payne in the act of robbing his house. Payne is believed to have been wounded today in a scuffle with a finance company employee who called at Payne's apartment to collect back payments. An all-points bulletin has gone out on Payne. Keep your eyes on the road. Think maybe he was talking about me? Well, he was. Just take it easy and you'll be all right. Okay, pal, don't worry about me. There's a nice shot here, a close-up of the cabbie with Dick's gun in the frame pointed right at the back of the cabbie's head. But let's get back to that radio announcement for a minute. How does anybody know this? How do they know that he killed Burroughs? How do they know that he was robbing Burroughs? And why is there a citywide dragnet for him? Why are they announcing this on the radio? Is he the only murderer in town? Dick tells the cabbie to pull over to the side of the road. They are now in the middle of nowhere. When they were in Oakside before, there was traffic everywhere. Now they're on some country road with no traffic, except for one guy who comes along. Dick sees him coming, tells the cabbie to lift the hood of the cab, and act like they have engine trouble. The guy stops. Do you need any help? No, everything's fine. Whereupon, the guy drives off. Dick tells the cabbie to get behind some bushes. Our squeamish camera again doesn't follow as Dick hits the cabbie over the head with his gun, which we don't directly see. We then dissolve to a clock in the bus station, reading 10.59. The camera pans down to show us a worried-looking Beth. Then we're back to the cab again. Now Dick is the driver, and he's out of the Oakside countryside and back in the Oakside city, which is big enough to have plenty of traffic and a civic auditorium. He gets stopped on the street by a truck where the driver has apparently just decided to get out and check his tires or something. But it turns out that he's right across the street from the bus depot. So he gets out of the cab and he leaves it there. But he's in bad shape and he staggers across the street and falls down at the curb. His shadow casts down below him onto the sidewalk. He pulls himself up and gets into the depot coming out on the other side where the buses depart. And as he gets out there, one bus pulls away. He's missed it. He starts to check another bus, but then Beth, out of frame, calls to him. Where were you going? But you were on the other bus. No, that's not our bus. Ours is late. He staggers against her, causing her to drop her purse. And we get a close-up of it as money spills out. And we get that twist that we knew all along. 
Where'd you get it? All that money, I never gave you that much. I got it from Mr. Burroughs. I tried to tell you about it this morning, but you wouldn't listen. I knew you wouldn't go there last night, so I went to him and, and he gave it to me. He was very nice. Dick! What is it? What's the matter? Never knew it was you in the room with Burroughs. You had the money all the time. I never needed to take it. You know, it's a funny thing, Beth. It's a rat race. You run all day. Having returned to the theme of the rat race, for I don't know what purpose, Dick dies. Now, if you look at the credits at the end of this episode, you will see the following actors listed. Skip Holmeyer, Joanne Woodward, Ken Christie, Henry Hunter, Mike Reagan, Billy Newell, Frank Craig, Harry Tyler, Jack Tesler, Dorothy Crehan, Don Dillaway, Patricia Knox, John Lehman, Joseph Gilbert, and Myron Cook. We knew who the first eight were, but who were the next seven? Well, after some digging, and with help from Patrick Wickstrom, I think we have almost everybody figured out. This is the second of two appearances for Jack Tesler. His first one was in Shopping for Death, episode 18. He was the man who said, 50 miles an hour along the main boulevard. He must have been crazy. And that certainly sounds like the man with the newspaper who met the woman at the bus. So a half hour I've been waiting here. Nobody let me in. Well, it's not my fault you forgot your key. Next time, take it with you. Oh, yeah, sure. The woman is Dorothy Crehan. She was only on screen from 1954 to 1960 and with only 13 credits. But among them was the role of Mrs. Mary Logan, the mother of Tony's girlfriend in I Was a Teenage Werewolf. It's Tony, and he's not even late. Maybe you're beginning to train him. That's no way to call for a date. When I courted your mother, we... Things were different then. I still want my daughter treated with respect. Your father's right, Arlene. Listen to him. This is her first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. Her next is None Are So Blind, episode five of season two. And Dorothy Crehan died in 1979 at the age of 81. Don Dillaway appears to be one of the policemen who race into the apartment building. He's not even the first guy to enter. He's the second guy to enter. But he gets a credit while the first guy does not. And that may be because Don Dillaway had a rather accomplished career, mostly in the 20s and the 30s. He began as a singer at the age of 12, and then he appeared on Broadway from 1925 to 1937. In 1927, he was one of seven actors who were found guilty of participating in the production of an obscene play, The Virgin Man. They received suspended sentences, and three producers of the play were fined $250 each and sentenced to 10 days in the workhouse. In 1931, he was in two acclaimed movies, the Academy Award-winning Cimarron, playing the adult Cimarron. I'm going out the Osage Reservation. I've studied nut geology, and they need new engineers out there. You're not fooling me for one moment, young man. It's Ruby. 
Well? Why, well, I think you'd be ashamed of yourself mooning around with an Indian hired girl. Ruby isn't an Indian hired girl. She's the daughter of an Osage chief. Osage fiddlestick. She's just as important in the Osage nation as well as Alice Roosevelt is in Washington. I've heard just about enough from you, Simran Kravat. And, and you might just as well know it that as soon as I'm on my own, I'm going to marry Ruby. Your father will put a stop to this. Dad knows. It's, it's all right with him. And Platinum Blonde playing Gene Harlow's brother. Well, who won that round? Afraid your mother won that round. That is, she got the last blow in. You know, I don't feel the way they do. You're really not as bad as everybody thinks. Well, begin to appreciate me, huh? Come on upstairs. I'll give you a little, uh, little uh, Sure, I'll be right up. He's all right. I like him. Oh, I'm glad. But as Wikipedia puts it, his roles became gradually smaller in the 1940s and 1950s, usually uncredited bit parts or perhaps in a credited bit part as a policeman who doesn't get any lines. Don Dillaway died in 1982 at the age of 79, and this is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. John Lehman appears to be the man who tips his cap at Beth at the bus station, the one reading the funnies. He only has 10 credits on IMDb, running from 1953 to 1957 though he is listed as having written the screenplay for The Magic Fountain, 1961. According to IMDb, his first role was as Conch in Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef, but as far as I could tell, the only Conch in that film was The Boat, so I couldn't find a clip. I also don't have any dates for him, so I can't tell you whether he's living or dead, but I can tell you that this is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Myron Cook is listed on IMDb as Man in Bar, which had me thinking that he's the first person whom Charlie serves. Hello. But Patrick Wickstrom let me know that he has identified Myron Cook as the fingerprint man in the film Chicago Confidential, and that that man is not the man sitting at the bar in this episode. So Patrick thinks that Myron Cook is the man off frame who speaks with Charlie the bartender. How much do I owe you? Dollar sixty. IMDb lists Myron with 16 credits from 1956 to 1966, most notably perhaps in The Amazing Colossal Man as Captain Thomas, but I can't find Captain Thomas in that film. I also don't have any dates for Myron, and all I can tell you beyond that is this is his only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We saw Joe Gilbert once before. He was one of the extras, one of the club patrons in The Legacy episode 35. Now, the Hitchcock Zone lists him as the radio announcer, but IMDb, I believe, correctly lists him as motorist. Do you need any help? No, everything's fine. This is Joe's second and last appearance. That leaves us with Patricia Knox, whom IMDb lists as being born in 1926. If that's the case, her first role as a hostess in the film Missing Daughters, took place when she was 13, and she played the blonde from Kokomo in A Man Betrayed when she was 15. Patrick Wickstrom has spotted her as Maple in the 1942 film Lady for a Night, when she presumably is 16, but he can't find her in the episode. I found her as Vera Moore in I Accuse My Parents. Miss Vera Moore, Mr. Jimmy Wilson. How do you do? I'm doing fine. <laughs> so are you, I see. <clears throat> well, so long, Kitty. Bye, Jimmy. Hey, what is this? You'd better watch your step, hadn't you? 
Blake? Yeah, Blake. In case you've forgotten, he's madly in love with you. But I can't find her either. IMDb lists her as woman at bus stop, but that was Dorothy Crehan, so maybe she's one of the women at the bus station, but none of them fit her description. Wherever she is, this is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. And assuming the birth date listed on IMDb is correct, Patricia Knox, at the time of this recording, is 95 years old. So that's our cast. Except if Joe Gilbert was not the radio announcer, then who is? Well, IMDb thinks that the radio announcer is Paul Fries. Born Solomon Hirsch Fries, Paul was mostly a voice actor known as the Man of a Thousand Voices. He first appeared on vaudeville in the 1930s as an impressionist under the name Buddy Green. He soon moved to radio, including as the announcer, alternating with William Conrad, of Escape. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! And as one of the announcers for Suspense including for the Victor Mature episode of Momentum. And now, with Momentum and with the performance of Victor Mature, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in suspense. In the early 1940s, Paul was drafted into the Army and fought at Normandy on D-Day. He was wounded in action and came back to the U.S. for a year of recuperation. Now, Paul was known for his impersonation of Orson Welles, which he used here at the beginning of the George Pal film, The War of the Worlds. No one would have believed in the middle of the 20th century that human affairs were being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's. Yet, across the gulf of space on the planet Mars, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our Earth with envious eyes, slowly and surely drawing their plans against us. This talent of mimicry brought him work in the 50s and 60s, re-looping dialogue of other actors for various reasons in various films. He was, for example, most of the falsetto voice used by Tony Curtis's character when he pretended to be Josephine in Some Like It Hot. What's the matter, sugar? I don't know. All of a sudden, I'm thirsty. How did you get that bracelet? You like it? I always did. Junior gave it to me. He's going to South America to marry another girl. That's what you call high finance. That's what I call a louse. Sugar, if I were you, I would take that bracelet and throw it right back in his face. Daphne? He's the first nice guy I ever met in my life. The only one ever gave me anything. You'll forget him, Sugar. And he worked as a voice actor in hundreds of cartoons and commercials, including for Walt Disney. Let me introduce myself. How do you do? I am Professor Ludwig von Drake. Today we are going to discuss the wonderful world of color. And as Boris Badenoff in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Well, Boris, we have done it again. I certainly have. We still don't have the formula. Who needs it? We got think of the fuel itself. Now let's check timetable to see what time leaves next submarine. And I can't complete clips of Paul Fries without playing his epilogue to Beneath the Planet of the Apes. In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star. And one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. 
IMDb notes that according to author Peter Goranik, Paul was an undercover narcotics agent for the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs in the 1960s. They also note that he was the original voice of the Pillsbury Doughboy, and in the early 70s, he was reportedly making $50,000 a year just for doing that voice work alone. Now, Wikipedia says that for the last two years of his life, Paul suffered from multiple ailments, including arthritis, diabetes, and loss of vision, and had mentioned to friends that he was in near-constant pain. He died at his home on November 2, 1986, at the age of 66, from a self-administered overdose of pain medication. The official cause of death was listed as suicide, but his agent issued a press release stating that he died from heart failure. This is his first of five Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances, all voice only. His next is Fog Closing In, episode two of season two. Okay, I have made a number of references to the original short story and to the suspense radio show, but let's look a little more closely at each of them. In his introduction to the book Rear Window and Four Short Novels, Francis M. Nevins Jr. traces the history of the story. And he writes, Momentum was called Murder Always Gathers Momentum when it was published in the December 14, 1940 issue of Detective Fiction Weekly. Over the next several years, this excellent story was apparently forgotten by everyone in the genre, except the late Frederick Denay, the editorial wizard of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, who reprinted it in the May 1949 EQMM under the less unwieldy, more evocative title, which has stuck to the tale for most of its subsequent life. After its appearance in EQMM, the story suddenly became a media favorite. In a 30-minute adaptation by E. Jack Newman, it was broadcast October 27, 1949, on radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense, starring Victor Mature and Lorene Tuttle. Woolrich included the story in his collection Somebody on the Phone, 1950. In April 1951, it was reprinted in Flynn's Detective Fiction magazine as Murder is a Snowball. Then the editor of the Saint Detective magazine changed the story's title to Murder Gathers Momentum for its appearance in that periodical's July 1954 issue. The Denae title, Momentum, was restored when a 30-minute TV film version was aired June 24, 1956 on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But this all-too-straightforward little picture left out most of the Depression-era desperation and anguish that permeate Woolrich's story. Or, as Jack Seabrook puts it, in his blog at barebonesez.blogspot.com, murder always gathers momentum has as its backdrop the Great Depression of the 1930s and the financial difficulty faced by Richard and Pauline, his wife is Pauline in the story, would have been familiar to readers of the detective pulp magazine in which it appeared. And so the story begins with Dick Payne hanging around Burroughs' house, trying to figure out exactly what he's going to say to him. And one possibility is, Mr. Burroughs, I worked for your concern faithfully for ten long years and the last six months of its existence to help keep it going. I voluntarily worked at half wages on your given word that my defaulted pay would be made up as soon as things got better. Instead of that, you went into phony bankruptcy to cancel your obligations. I haven't come near you all these years, and I haven't come to make trouble now. If I thought you really didn't have the money, I still wouldn't. But it's common knowledge by now that the bankruptcy was feigned. It's obvious by the way you continue to live that you salvaged your own investment. And I've lately heard rumors of your backing a dummy corporation under another name to take up where you left off. 
Mr. Burroughs, I have to have help tonight. It can't wait another 24 hours. There's a hole the size of a 50-cent piece in the sole of each of my shoes. I have a wedge of cardboard in the bottom of each one. We haven't had light or gas in a week now. There's a bailiff coming tomorrow morning to put out the little that's left of our furniture and seal the door. So yes, Dick is desperate in the way that people in the Depression were desperate. But also, Dick is in the right here. It is Burroughs who is the crook. Now, as in our episode, there's another visitor ahead of Dick at Burroughs' house. And so Dick peeks in through the window. But in this case, Burroughs closes the shade, preventing Dick from seeing who the visitor is. He can, however, peek through the slats of the shade well enough to see Burroughs opening up his wall safe and to see the combination. Now, in his peeping, Dick does see a second hand smoother, but that's all of the other person. And he doesn't bother to see who comes out of the house because it was too dark for that, and his primary purpose was to keep his own presence concealed. As I mentioned earlier, in the story, Dick chooses not to ring the doorbell because he'll only say no point blank and slam the door in my face. And then once he's seen me out here, I'll be the first one he'll suspect afterwards. Because Dick is already planning to rob Burroughs. He enters the office, putting a handkerchief on his face to conceal his features. He doesn't turn on the light. He uses matches to illuminate the combination dial. But Burroughs comes in, and they struggle. And in the struggle, Dick's mask comes off. You're Dick Payne, you dirty crook. I know you now. You're Dick Payne, my old employee. You're going to pay for this. That was all he had time to say. That was his own death warrant. Payne was acting under such neuromuscular compulsion, brought on by the instinct of self-preservation, that he wasn't even conscious of stooping to retrieve the fallen gun. The next thing he knew it was in his hand, pointed toward the accusing mouth that was all he was afraid of. He jerked the trigger. For the second time, it clicked, either jammed or unloaded at that chamber. He was to have that on his conscience afterwards, that click, like a last chance given him to keep from doing what he was about to do. That made it something different. That took away the shadowy little excuse he would have had until now. They changed it from an impulsive act committed in the heat of combat to a deed of cold-blooded deliberate murder with plenty of time to think twice before it was committed. And conscience makes cowards of us all, and he was a coward to begin with. So Dick's killing of Burroughs is a deliberate act, and it starts the momentum. He looked up once or twice at the star-flecked sky as he trudged along. It was over. That was all there was to it. Just a jealously guarded secret now. A memory that he daren't share with anyone else, not even Pauline. But deep within him, he knew better. It wasn't over. It was just beginning. That had been just the curtain raiser back there. Murder, like a snowball rolling down a slope, gathers momentum as it goes. He stops at a bar to have a drink, but he doesn't have enough money except those big bills he got from Burroughs. And the bartender sees the gun and starts yelling for the police, so Dick shoots him. Another one. Two now. Two in less than an hour. Payne didn't think the words. They seemed to glow out at him, emblazoned on the grimy washroom walls in characters of fire, like in that biblical story. Dick makes it home, looks in on his wife. She was lying there asleep. Poor thing, poor helpless thing, married to a murderer. So his entire self-view has been changed. He's now just marked himself as a murderer. That influences everything else he does as the momentum continues. When the next day he tells Pauline they have to leave and sends her ahead, she objects, afraid that something will happen and he won't show up. 
He tried to reassure her, pressing her hands between his. Pauline, I give you my word of honor. That was no good. He was a murderer now. And this, later, when he's with the cabbie, looking back on his life of just yesterday, as if from a distance. The cabbie asks him, care to listen to the radio? May as well. It's thrown in with the fare. Won't cost you nothing extra. Go ahead, Payne consented. It made the pain a little easier to bear, like music always does. I used to dance, too, Payne thought, listening to the tune, before I started killing people. And here, yes, he does kill a number of people. He kills the finance guy who comes to his apartment. He kills the cop that comes in because of the killing of the finance guy. Note that it's the killing of the finance guy and of the cop that bring the police down on him. They don't know a thing about the death of Mr. Burroughs or the bartender. It's in a gunfight with the cop that Dick himself is wounded. And he kills the cabbie, too, so that the cabbie can't report him. Until we come to the same ending. It's on a train rather than a bus, but it's still that twist where we find out that Pauline was the one at Burroughs and that she got the money that Burroughs owed to Dick. The radio show is much closer to the story than our episode is, with the main difference that Dick is the crook here. He's the one trying to cheat Burroughs. I know just where. Mr. Burroughs. Oh, Dick, you're not going to Mr. Burroughs. Why not? He owes it to me. He's making money out of my invention, isn't oh, he? Dick, you know that when you worked for Mr. Burroughs, you were paid for everything you did. Yeah, if you call a couple of bucks a week pay. Burroughs is making a lot of dough in that stinking shop just because of my invention. But he's not that way. And what about that invention? It's about that lug wrench you're still using in the shops, the one with the long side screw. Yeah, what about it? I, uh, I invented it, Mr. Burroughs. Oh, really? I thought Tim Riley worked that out. Well, Tim worked on it, but uh, it was me who figured out how to set that thumb screw. Hasn't the thumb screw always been set that way? Not high on the wrench, no. Oh, and I see. Since I figured it out while I was here, and since you're using it, uh, well, I think I ought to be paid for it. I worked on it a long time. Payne, I just don't believe this, frankly. Tim Riley's been my foreman for 12 years. I know him pretty well. He'd have been the first to tell me if you'd contributed anything to perfecting that wrench. But Burroughs is willing to do something to get Dick off his back. You know, Payne, I expected you to try something like this, and I'm ready for it. Yeah, well, where's my dough? Here. I want you to sign this. Here. What is it? A release. Although I don't owe you anything, for Mrs. Payne's sake, I'm giving you some money, because I, I know you both need it. This release will be my receipt. It'll ensure me against you bothering me about this again. Yeah. Go ahead, sign it. Where's the dough? Where's the dough? How much? $200? Well, why didn't you say so? I... Oh, no, you don't, wise guy. I want more than that. Look, if it's big enough to make me sign a release, it's big enough to bring in a lot more dough. Get out of here, Payne. Which leads to our struggle, in which Burroughs is knocked down and accidentally killed. He said something, and I said something, and it all piles up like a snowball. The first thing somebody gets, hurt. If he'd listened to reason and... Well, if he'd have just listened to reason, he'd be alive now. When I felt his pulse, there was nothing. I opened his coat to feel his heart. And that's when a black shiny billfold fell out. It was crammed with money. My money. Now, in spite of being a rotten guy, Dick does not kill Burroughs intentionally. He doesn't even shoot him. He dies in the struggle. 
But as in the story, Dick goes to a bar to have a drink. He doesn't have enough small change to pay for it, and he tries to slip out the back. But the bartender comes after him, and the bartender has a gun. All right, wise guy, I thought you'd try something like this. Come on, get off of that list. Look, I was only opening the window to get some air yeah, in here. Yeah, sure, tell it to the cops. I'll pay you. Look, I'll pay you anything you want. That's deadbeat, I spotted you the minute you walked in the joint. I can spot him a mile off. Now, come on, get moving. No. Hey, come Look, on, I, I'm you crazy you, fool. You tell me. Exploded, you might get scared. Let go of me. You, uh, you crazy. At this point, like Dick in our episode, the deaths, the murders, are accidental. But when a man comes to his door a little bit later, Dick hits him over the head with the butt of the gun, hard enough to kill him. That's when he finds out that the man is the bailiff from City Hall. He's come to evict us. Evict us, and I'd killed him. I wasn't a killer. It was this momentum. Everybody I met... Three people in three hours. At this point, he flips out and runs out into the street with the gun in his hand. Why, Mr. Payne, what's the matter? Move that baby carriage. Get out of my way. Don't point that gun at me. Move it. I said move it. Oh, no, you don't, Topper. He steals a milk truck and goes to the train station to meet Pauline, where he throws a sweeper onto the tracks, now having descended from accidental murder to very willful murder. Uh, please move the foot so I sweep where you stand, huh? Sure, sure. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot. I sweep just... Hey, what's this? Huh? Your nose don't bleed, but there's a fresh blood drip on the platform. Blood. Hey, what's your name? None of your business. Just a minute. More blood. I don't like this. Now I know why you don't tell me your name. You shame. Maybe you the same fellow shoot a policeman tonight. All right, yeah. turn around. Oh, you got to go. Turn around, I said. The minister, what are you going to do? Don't you worry. What do you think? And then our same twist ending with only a slight variation. I got off work early and went to see Mr. Burroughs. He gave me $200. He said when you came by, he'd have you sign a release for us. Paul, Dick. Oh, Dick! So in the original story, we have a man who starts thinking of himself as a murderer and therefore continues to be a murderer. In the radio show, we have a man who has convinced himself that he's a victim, even as he continues to be a victimizer. But what do we have in our television episode? Well, let's get back around to that in a minute. For now, let's take another look at an early Hitchcock film. You know, when I first started this look at Hitchcock's early film days, my plan was to begin with The Great Day, his very first as title designer, at episode 23, Back for Christmas, because that was the last Hitchcock-directed episode of season one, and end with The Pleasure Garden, his very first as sole director, at Wet Saturday, because that is the first Hitchcock-directed episode of season two. I knew then that I had too, too many films, and that I'd have to double up a couple of them in order to make it work. Only each time I planned to do that, it felt like the podcast was already long enough. Now, instead, I'm left with three movies, The Passionate Adventure, The Blaggard, and The Prude's Fall, with just one spot left to go. 
So rather than triple up, I'm going to take a short look at the passionate adventure here and leave the other two for some future time. So yes, The Passionate Adventure, a film for which Hitchcock was co-seniorist along with Michael Morton, art director and assistant director under again Graham Cutts. It was the first film for Michael Balkan's Gainsborough production. Here's Alain Kurzenkopf and Charles Barr in Hitchcock Lost and Found, The Forgotten Films. The novel by Frank Slayton gave Hitchcock as adapter the chance to develop a more successful version of the narrative of the double than he had been able to in The White Shadow. Clive Brook, here in his third successive role for this production team, has a respectable wealthy persona and an alternate low-life one, to offset the sterility of his upper-class marriage, he makes regular incognito visits to the East End of London. There, he becomes involved with a woman whom he rescues from a bully, played by future Hollywood star Victor McLaughlin. The film has what is at least ostensibly a happy ending, as Brooks' character returns to remake his marriage on a more honest basis than before. In Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, Patrick McGilligan first quotes the novel by Frank Slayton. Vicky screamed. Then, scarcely knowing what she was doing, she threw herself on Harris, plunging the knife beneath his left shoulder blade. His fingers relaxed. He coughed, then fell backward on the floor between the table and the bed. And then McGilligan writes, Hitchcock was already beginning to develop his storytelling philosophy, again with a language all his own. He looked for a springboard situation in a story source and for any number of dynamic situations that might lend themselves to visual emphasis that might be ocularly interesting. He liked to start a film with an allegro or andante sequence, he said, something in a leisurely tempo. Then he would give the audience a sudden jolt followed by a series of jolts building to a crescendo, or high spot, ending the story perhaps with a gentle, ambiguous coda. Here, during a violent struggle, a gleaming knife finds its way into the grip of tenement good girl Lillian Hall Davis, and the endangered heroine plunges the blade into Victor McLaughlin, saving the hero. This quintessential Hitchcock image came straight from the novel and the play, as good a reader as he was a watcher, Hitchcock always plucked out the dramatic elements that spoke to him that best served his compulsion to tell his uniquely gripping stories. Then he found ways to stage these dynamic situations that would magnify their emotional impact. For Hitchcock, his Islington apprenticeship confirmed the power of technique, but it also established the ideas, inspirations, and obsessions of a 50-year career remarkable for its persistence of vision. Here's Kurzenkopf and Barr again. In terms of Hitchcock's motifs, the most startling element in the film is the entry through a window, a recurring motif that generally has some kind of sexual resonance, as it seems to do here. Brooke effects this entry late in the film on his return home to his wife from another secret visit to the East End. Hitchcock's sets for both the upper class and East End scenes are again impressive in their scope and detail. But the main element that stands out in relation to his own subsequent films is the strategy of the look, deployed in varied and subtle ways. The sterility of the upper class marriage is conveyed by the way the husband fails in a shot-reverse-shot construction to return the look of his wife as she goes upstairs to bed. The exchange of looks between the man and the East End woman is much stronger on both sides. The tensions culminate in a scene where she takes a bath behind a screen while he recuperates. This sequence will be echoed at the start of The Pleasure Garden, where the chorus girl, played by Virginia Valley, returns the voyeuristic gaze of the man in the front stalls. 
and in a different way in Blackmail, where Annie Andra changes clothes behind the screen that separates her from the artist at the piano. The October 1924 issue of Pictures and Picturegoer notes, Some of the sets in The Passion and Adventure are unique, especially the large hall, which is seen so many times and from so many different angles during the progress of the story. Graham Cutts tells me it was especially designed so as to give a minimum of 200 different camera angles. The movie itself will doubtless be popular, for it is well acted, beautifully costumed, and ably directed. And Charles Barr, in his article, Do We Love Hitchcock, on learningscreen.ac.uk, tells us that the film survives in full, albeit with intertitles in German, and has been accessible for years. But, like other silent films by cuts and British contemporaries, only in Britain. Which is a shame, because as Barr also notes, after the critical and commercial fiasco of The White Shadow, the passionate adventure is in every way more impressive and rather more significant as a missing link. So if there's anyone out there in Britain or elsewhere who has seen The Passionate Adventure, please drop me a line and give me a review. Okay, so Dick in the story is engulfed in the Depression then engulfed in his self-identification as a murderer. Dick in the radio play is engulfed in his own schemes and sense of victimhood. But Dick in our episode is engulfed in the rat race, in the struggle to find a job in a fast-paced, uncaring world, as opposed to his counterparts who embrace their murder sprees, either by heartlessly killing the cabbie or running into the street waving a gun in front of a woman with a baby carriage. Our version has no murder spree to embrace. He commits one accidental murder and then carries his guilt so far that it becomes paranoia. In his attempt to make our dick more sympathetic, less of a killer, Francis Cockrell has wrenched away the reason to tell the story in the first place. We are left with a flawed man with a loyal wife who doesn't trust her enough to be open with her and does not have the strength to do what he should have done all along. Ask Mr. Burroughs for his earned money before his wife is forced to go there ahead of him. To put it another way, in the story, Burroughs is the crook. In the radio play, Dick is. But in the Hitchcock episode, they're both innocent. It's neither of them at fault. It's just the rat race. But the concept of the rat race is a poor fit here. Now, in the story, Dick decides to break in rather than ring the doorbell because he knows that he will be the prime suspect in a robbery if Burroughs turns him down. And in both the story and the radio play, the police pursue Dick because of his gunfights, not because he has killed Burroughs, about which they know nothing. But here, with Dick mostly innocent, the script must rely on chance to keep the whole thing from folding up. In the story and radio play, momentum is the spiraling down of Dick into more murder. But here in this episode, I think of momentum as being the attempt by the script to drag us along at such a pace that we don't think about who was in Burroughs' office with him. Or why Dick doesn't put the chain on the door when the finance company guy comes around. Or how the police know that he committed a murder so that there's an APB out on him at all. There's supposed to be a feeling of inevitability about the whole thing, but there isn't. Instead, there's a feeling of coincidence and manipulation with a character who has to be oblivious to what is really going on around him in order to make it all work. Jack Seabrook, in his review, writes that the episode is less than the sum of its parts. And he also notes that it bears a copyright date of 1955, but was not broadcast till the end of June 1956, suggesting that the producers realized it was a weak episode and held it till the end of the season, when viewership declined. 
and that just may be so. Now back to Hitch, who is still standing under that unblinking eye, but my DVD only has the post-commercial part of the outro, so I'm going to have to read the first part. Well, that only proves you can't go by appearances. Who would have guessed that such an ordinary man like Richard Payne would have had the nerve and the audacity to drive a taxicab without a chauffeur's license? Of course, none of this would have happened if he had stayed at home that evening and watched television. And he would have learned many things, an example of which we now show you, after which I'll be back. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Star Trek, the original series, Seasons 2 and 3, The Ghost in Mr. Chicken, The Three Faces of Eve, Rachel Rachel, Sybil, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, Foreign Correspondent, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, The Great Race, The Twilight Zone, The Complete Second Season, Cimarron, Platinum Blonde, Rocky and Bullwinkle and Friends, The Complete Season 1, The War of the Worlds, Some Like It Hot, and Beneath the Planet of the Apes are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Dan Raven Clips, the film They Might Be Giants, the song Birdhouse in Your Soul by They Might Be Giants, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I Accused My Parents, the suspense episodes The Visitor and Momentum, the clip from Escape, the clip of Ludwig von Drake, and the YouTube clip concerning Joanna Woodward's Alzheimer's are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. That brings us to the end of season one, a pretty good season altogether. As Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom put it in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, if this season hadn't been as successful, Alfred Hitchcock Presents would not have gone any further than one season. And as we know, it went a lot further than that. Martin and Patrick also provide us with the list of the first season award nominations and victories. Here it is. Alfred Hitchcock Presents was nominated for an Emmy in 1955 for Best Action or Adventure Series, losing out to Disneyland. Alfred Hitchcock was nominated for an Emmy for Best Master of Ceremonies or Program Host, Male or Female, for a television series in 1955. He lost to Perry Como. Hitchcock was nominated for an Emmy for Best Director in a televised film series in 1955, most notably The Case of Mr. Pelham. He lost out to Nat Hyken for the CBS series You'll Never Get Rich, which is also the Phil Silver Show. On the other hand, Edward W. Williams won an Emmy in 1955 for Best Editing of a Television Film, most notably the episode Breakdown, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Look Magazine's annual television awards listed Alfred Hitchcock as Best Director of 1955, and Television Almanac awarded Alfred Hitchcock Presents as Best Mystery Program for Television in 1955. Next time, Episode 40, or Episode 1 of Season 2, if you prefer, Wet Saturday, starring Sir Cedric Hardwick and John Williams, directed by Alfred Hitchcock.
very educational. Next week we shall return with another story. I suggest you join us. It might be unwise to disappoint Big Brother. <laughs>